and gentlemen, welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. My name is Zach Faulkner Barfield, and alongside me is the charming, the considerate, the chivalrous and dapper Mr. James Marwood. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, my friend. Yourself? I'm very good, sir. Good. Back into the swing of the podcast. That's what I like. It's been rather timely for me this week because I need to ask your advice on something. Please shoot away. Ask away. Well, you are a dab hand in the kitchen, as we've discussed. Well, I'm not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've eaten your food. I'm confident saying that. But I'm in the market for some new kitchen knives. Mine are starting after oh, probably 15 years or so of hard use. The handles are starting to drop apart a bit and they're looking a bit shabby. But it's been a long time since I've looked at kitchen knives, so I'm not sure what to buy. Oh, good question, actually. Good question. You just want a couple of general knives? So most of the time, I tend to use either a, a small chef's knife or possibly be more better described as a paring knife that I use for a lot of little tasks, chilies and prawns and that sort of thing. And I tend to use a, a chef's knife, a, a largest chef's knife for most things. And I've got a San Tuku knife that I, I love for dealing with large amounts of vegetables. Ideally, I'd like to get something that I'm not going to have to replace again in, in a few years' time, but something that will last me quite a long time. OK, I would say you need a, a good Santoku knife, uh, Santoku knife. For a good knife, you're going to spend anything between sort of 90 to £200. Yeah, I think the budget's probably OK f for that. You know, I've got some cheap knives that I use for easiest little jobs in the kitchen, and they're OK. And I have a, a good quality cleaver that I use for dealing with chicken or ribs or that sort of thing. The knives I had in the past were sort of a sabatier style. Yeah. And I quite like that, but the pins have started to go and the, the handles have shrunk a little uh, because I do tend to put all my stuff through the dishwasher. I'm a little bit lazy like that. Oh, not for knives. Oh. No? Is that as bad as it seems? It's bad for chef's knives just because it's like putting suits in a dry cleaners. Oh, OK. Well, I would never, <laughs> never do that more than once or twice. It's quite an astringent material, so it will shrink the handles. It will get into stuff which it wouldn't you wouldn't normally get into unless it's a one-piece knife i never put my kitchen knives in a dishwasher ever they're always hand washed that's probably what's done for mine so when it comes to sort of design are you do you prefer like a, a european style sort of heavy handle or a, a japanese style knife my favorite knives of modern time are japanese hybrid knife they're called global i've seen those in the shop with the skeletonized handle dimpled, dimpled skeletonized yes. handle yeah. yeah so it's all okay. one piece of metal so you don't have a traditional handle i really like the grip of those the blades are beautiful they're generally amazingly sharp they're great for slicing I've had one for six years and the blade is not dulled. So Chef's Knives Bold Dam's two great styles. There's the Japanese mm -hmm. blades and the German Swiss blades. Those two are the kind of the creme de la creme of Chef's Knives. If you just get one knife, currently I'd always get a Santoku knife. Yep. I think they're the best multitasking knife that you can get. More useful than a Chef's Knife. If you're only going to get one knife in a kitchen, I'd always get a Santoku over a Chef Knife. Oh, okay. Then the next knife you buy is a Chef Knife. I see. I feel as if you're going to cook, you want a great knife to start with that's got a wider broad blade mm -hmm. and it's easier to chop faster with a santoku knife so you need between an eight and ten inch blade seven inch santoku is good if you like something a little bit smaller always go and test them mm -hmm. and feel how the handle is in your hand and would you buy your knives individually or do you would you buy a set uh, i tend to buy them individually because i buy different knives of different things 
Chef Rosantuku, I go definitely for a, a most expensive ones I can afford, the ones that I like. I like Global, I like Shun, it's another Japanese brand. Henkel's a, a Misermeister, they're great. Wustoff as well, basically German and Japanese. Fair enough. As you get more, you want a smaller three, four inch pairing knife. I always have a large cleaver. One of my mentor chefs was a Chinese gentleman and they always cook with big cleavers. And the other one I have is a very thin serrated ah, knife. okay. For peeling and that sort of thing. For peeling, but also for chopping tomatoes. So I have a, like, ah, a five-inch okay, yeah. serrated bladed knife. Serrated is much, much easier and much, much quicker to chop lots of tomatoes with. And especially because it'll grip it so they're not sliding around all over the place. And Exactly. That would be my top tips. A santuku knife, a chef's knife, a paring knife, a cleaver I already have, and a serrated tomato knife and from a good Japanese or German maker. Basically, that's it. And spend as much money as you can. If I'm not buying a set, which is what I did last time, it's probably better for me to buy you know one or two good knives a month for the next few months. I can do that. Don't store them in a drawer. Either have a knife block or a, put them on a rack. Hone them regularly. Yep. Get them sharpened professionally. Ah, okay. Now, that's something I've not done. I mean, I'm quite good at, at sharpening knives, which I picked up from sort of the martial arts and the swordy stuff, but it is quite a job to get it just right. And the other thing is chop on chopping boards. Chopping boards should be wood or plastic. Yes, that's what I have. Excellent. Well, there you go. Well, thank you very much for that, my friend. You're welcome. Now, something we were talking about a bit earlier, and it's something I've had this discussion with someone else as well. You're talking about packed lunches. Yes, yes. Well, I, I'm working close enough to home to take a packed lunch for the first time in, oh, crikey, probably something like... 16 years. Ordinarily, my working week starts at sort of half past four, five o'clock on a Monday morning with travelling and ends late on a Friday evening with travelling. But my current client is eight minutes from home, (laughs) which is slightly disconcerting, but it means I can take a packed lunch. Now, I've been doing standard things such as sandwiches and uh, a little piece of cheese or, or some fruit and that sort of thing. But it's a little dull. So what do you do for packed lunches? The trick is twofold. One is you need to be working almost like a fitness prep or a health prep. Okay. So plan your meals for the week. So you can do it on a Sunday or you know whatever day is good for you, but generally Sunday is the easiest one. And then batch cook so you don't have to think about it. Okay. So that's probably something I'm doing wrong because I must admit, normally I aim to do my packed lunch the night before, but quite often I find myself doing it in a rush in the morning. As we always say, a bit of preparation goes a long, long way. Yes. Plan like you were doing it for a fitness thing, same principles apply, and batch cook stuff. So batch cook a bunch of chicken or a bunch of whatever meat protein you want, fish or something like that, and do maybe some different flavours on it. So if it's chicken, for example, two chicken breasts with a lemon and herb marinade or sauce, and then do two with maybe some paprika and tomato or whatever it is, shove them in the oven, bake them away just so it's easier. Then you can add other ingredients to it so one day it could be rice one day it could be salad mm-hmm. one day it could be just peppers and cheese maybe or do like a little greek salad to go in it and just prep it all in advance and then you've got the big protein item already pre-cooked so it's ready to go so then you can do it the night before because you know exactly what you're doing you're not thinking about something else okay a fruit really good bananas oranges satsumas apples anything that you can sort of throw in a bag and not worry about unless you really love it tend to avoid pasta for lunches you don't know if there's a microwave and you want something that you could possibly have cold as well as hot i find if i eat 
pasta at lunch, I sort of crash about two o'clock. Yeah, some protein, whether that's meat or fish or whatever your protein choice is, and then some kind of base ingredient, whether it's salad or uh, maybe some rice. I like doing a Greek salad with some peppers, mm -hmm. tomatoes, cucumbers, and uh, onion and some peppers with the, whatever my protein is. I'm a cheeseaholic. Yes, me too. There will always be cheese in my food somewhere along the line. Um, throw in a little plastic container and away you go, and that's your meal. Fantastic. It's always, for me, it's forethought. Mm. You can really start having some fun with it. You know, you could do green beans with some chili and feta mm. with maybe a little bit of tuna fish. Stuff that's not very good is things like lamb. But pork's good. Beef's good. Last week, the Duchess and I did a combination Brazilian-English roast beef. Oh, wow. Sounds good. She had some work come in all in a hurry and I, I had to finish it off and I wasn't really sure what she had planned. But she'd started by marinating a joint of uh, silver sard in chilies, garlic, lime and onion. And then she'd fresh cooked it. And the her plan was to finish it off in some way, but I don't quite know what she, she'd planned. So I then roasted it. And just cooked it like I would cook a joint of beef, but only for half as long because it had been in the pressure cooker for a while. And it was fantastic. It was one of the nicest pieces of meat I've had in ages. <laughs> and I had that for work with some very mild aioli and salad, and it was delicious. So I'm definitely going to do that again. But I like some of these other ideas, like the, the green beans, chilli and tuna sounds good. Packed lunch is just a little preparation. Throw in a couple of bits of treats every now and again. A little bit of dark chocolate is always good for you. We're being very healthy. A good healthy lunch with a, perhaps a little bit of dark chocolate is probably a very good idea. I'm, I'm definitely on a health kick at the moment with my walk ahead of me. Oh, yes, of course. Now, tell us more about this walk. I think we mentioned earlier I'm doing my challenges every quarter. Mm -hmm. So my quarter's challenge this quarter is to do the Trail Walker, which is a thing run by Oxfam for the Gurkha Welfare Trust, which the Gurkhas being a military unit here in the UK. And it's 100 kilometres across the South Downs, which is from the New Forest to Brighton, uh, within 30 hours. Blimey, that is a challenge. Yes. So at the moment, I am going to the gym five days a week. Fantastic. Every weekend, I am doing a ridiculously long walk. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, it's 25, 30 kilometres. That's a walk in a bit. And one day off, so I, my body can go, ah, <laughs> eating well and noticing the looseness of some of my trousers. That's always a good thing. That's in July. I should be badgering you out there in podcast land for donations for the charity walk. And for a very good cause. I lived in Farnborough in Hampshire for a while, which has a, a very large ex-military Gurkha community. And supporting those chaps is always a good thing. They were some of the best neighbours I've ever had. Delightful people. My father was a, an officer in the Gurkhas. Yeah, so I, I've known the regiment for some time. They are the nicest, politest, kindest people in the world, but you would never want to cross them in a fight. <laughs> well, we talked about a bit of our food. I think we should talk a little bit about manners. Yes, indeed. Um, especially around food. Yes. Um, so I, I had a situation. I was at a, a martial arts event recently, and we all went to a curry house after training, so we're all very tired and very hungry 25 of us thereabouts turned up at this curry house without a lot of warning and they were struggling to get all the meals out in time I was waiting for other people to get their food and they insisted I eat and so I did and it felt a bit strange well I think it's interesting our restaurants have a slightly different etiquette than a host table someone at home and also as you say a lot of people in one sitting at one table that aren't ready for it 
are not set up for it, you are going to get that timing issue. As long as the consensus is to start eating, I think that's totally uh, acceptable. If it was a smaller group, my sort of general rule of thumb, if it's four, wait for everyone, unless they're in an incredibly bad service. Or if you're eating at one of these modern restaurants that say, oh, our food's so fresh, we bring it all out when it's ready. Like, no, your planning in your restaurant and your kitchen is poor, so you bring it out when it's ready. <laughs> exactly. Um, if it's four or more, it's dependent on, on the person who's going to be waiting the longest. If everyone's got a plate and someone's waiting, you let them make the decision. If you're at home, it's always the host's decision. And what would you do as host in that sort of situation, Zach? It depends on the food stuff. I mean, if it's all cold, then you wait. I mean, if it's hot food, you insist on people starting and then you are obliged as guests to start. What are the dining etiquette things do we need to really be aware of then, Zach? It was uh, an interesting article. Um, I can't remember where it was. I think this is one you shared with me from the National, from the uh, UAE. Yes, it was about the importance of dining etiquette, especially around the world. One of the interesting things that he talks about is how important it is and how well noticed it is around the world, how you behave. Let's just go through the basics. Keep your elbows off the table while you're eating. Once you've finished eating, you're having your coffee, you put your elbows on your table, that's not too bad. Just your wrists is generally best. Sort of paraphrasing George Orwell, four legs good, two legs bad. Yes. Don't start rocking your chair or leaning back or anything like that. Always adhere to the culture of your host, especially in today's world. If you're at an Arabic table, behave with Arabic uh, eating methods. If you're an Asian table, behave with Asian eating methods. If you're a Western table, behave with Western dining etiquette. If you're eating with your hands, eat with your hands correctly. Small amounts, tip of your fingers lightly pushed into your mouth. Chopsticks, you know, be careful with your chopsticks. Use them correctly. Rest the chopsticks under the chopstick rest. Never leave them anywhere else. These are all the little things that you just be aware of. Napkins are always one that confuses people. Place it on your lap as soon as you sit down and you're going to eat. When you get up to go to the bathroom, don't put it on the table. Correct position is to put it on the chair. Because you put it on the table, it means you've finished eating in a silver service restaurant. Yes. They will think, oh, you finished eating, you're not coming back. Those are the kind of things that are important. There are things that you can get away with these days a little bit more. I'm always still of the opinion, no phones on the table. We have talked before, I think, about the phone stack, which I still think is a fantastic idea. Yes. Someone was saying to me the other day that whoever answers the phone first or uses the phone first or checks the phone first pays for the next meal. That's very sensible. Is there anything on your radar? One of the things that can be quite interesting, especially in a, a business setting or in a, a non-romantic social setting, is what to do about the bill. And this was something that came up and has been many times when we've been out as a group. And ordinarily we will split the bill. You know, if it's one or two of us and we meet regularly, we might take turns, as you and I would do. But when there's a large group of you, you have to split the bill. Two things, I guess, that always irritate me with that is when there's always somebody who hasn't thought ahead and needs to pay their bit on a card. And so we're spending the end of a nice dinner working out exactly who has to pay what. And then the other is when people want to pay for just what they've had. <laughs> if it's a couple of you, that's not a huge problem. If, well, I, I had a couple of glasses of wine and you just had water, so I'll pay for the wine. But when it's 25 of you, and it's time to pay the bill, just split it. Give a generous tip, because the waiter will have worked bloody hard making sure that you all got your food, and split the bill. Don't quibble about, well, you had a £6 starter and I only had a £4 starter. That kind of thing drives me nuts. Just split the goddamn bill. It all works out in the end, and unless you've suddenly been drinking Krug champagne and scoffing lobster when everyone else is not, in which case you're no longer my friend. Yes. Just split the bill. 
25 people, it's kind of far too complicated to do anything else. I appreciate sometimes, you know, if somebody is is watching their pennies a bit, in which case your friends will generally take care of you anyway. Although talking about the, uh, the lobster and Krug, there was a conversation on social media recently about terrible dates. One was a, a chap who described the girl who turned up, she turned her nose up at his first choice of restaurant and then indicated that she wanted to go to somewhere a bit nicer. So he'd taken her to a quite a nice restaurant for a first date and she went to town on the menu but was a pretty charmless dialing companion I think he'd taken slight offence and said, said so of course we'll just split the bill and she wasn't able to cover it she'd come out expecting she could just be a bit haughty and, and unpleasant to this guy and he'd buy her a very nice dinner I think in, in those sorts of circumstances how would you how would you play that Zach? That's a dangerous question I probably wouldn't have split the bill I wouldn't have forced the issue just because that's me but I certainly would never have seen the young lady again Absolutely. If you think someone is deliberately taking you for a trip and is taking advantage, I'd be very tempted to bring it up and I probably still would cover dinner, but I would say don't appreciate that. I'm back out in the dating scene again. Previously when I was dating and and things like I've had some crazy dates in my life, I would normally choose a restaurant that I know is reasonable. When I invite a lady out for a dinner date, I give food choice rather than restaurant choice. You know, trying to impress someone on a first date with a very expensive restaurant is not the best idea. No, it sets precedent. It does. And also, it's not the most relaxing situation to be in. One of my favourite restaurants in London is uh, is Hawksmoor, the steak place. There's five or six around central London. And they are fantastically expensive, but they're not cheap. It'd be an unusual trip for me to go to one of those. It'd be a special occasion. And I did that once for a first date. And it was a bit of a mistake, if I'm honest. I think we would have been much more comfortable and had a much better evening if I'd just gone for somewhere a bit more middle of the road, just a a little family Italian or something like that. It would have been much nicer. You want to go somewhere that you're relatively aware of or comfortable in. Yes. So you're at ease enough so that you make your date feel at ease enough. Yes. Would Would you order for someone in that sort of situation, Zach? I've only done it when I've ever been asked to. I never will order for someone unless they've asked me to order for someone. I had that with a very dear friend of mine. She was an American the first time she'd been to an Indian restaurant and she had no idea. So she said, well, I trust you. Order me something you know I will like. So I did. I got a quite a mild but fruity curry and she loved it. But I wouldn't presume to do that. And, I, and I've reversed the situation. I remember I was taken to a, a Russian restaurant with a friend of mine and it's a food world I know little about. I said, please just order for me. These are the stuffs I can't eat or don't like. Feel free to order anything else. I mean, I would say if you're inviting someone out, always give a food choice over a restaurant choice so you can choose the budget that you're capable of covering if it comes to that. Indeed. And always go somewhere that you are aware of, even if you've not been there before, that you're aware of the ambiance and the place and you know what it's like and so you are relatively comfortable being there. Yes, I think the purpose of that date is not to wow someone with your fantastic knowledge of restaurants and fine wines. It's to have a conversation and get to know each other. Exactly. One final thing before we toddle off into the darkness. I was in Soho in London a few weeks ago and I had breakfast with a friend of mine and I was spying the next door table. These gentlemen had a couple of copies of a book on their table. The same book? Oh, the same book. It was a couple of copies of the same book and I was eyeing it and I was looking it up and I was intrigued and immediately drawn to the title and the cover and it was called Scoundrels. Oh, fantastic. And it had two sort of dapper, well-suited gentlemen in there early 20th century outfits outside obviously a gentleman's club 
one carrying a blunderbuss. <laughs> Magnificent. I looked at the photo and looked at the title and went, I've got to speak to these gentlemen. Of course. I toddled across after I'd finished with my chat, you know, I introduced myself and said, excuse me, and talked to them and said, is this your book? And they said, yes. And I said, oh my God, that's fantastic. It looks great. And we talked a little bit about the book and all that sort of stuff. And they told me a little bit about it. And I said, I will definitely mention it on our podcast. Yes. It's called Scoundrels, Volume 1. It is uh, written by Major Cornwall and Major Trevelyan. They're the memoirs of these two gentlemen. I see. Revolving about the infamous Gentlemen's Club of London. Excellent. It's described as one part Flashman to two parts Mordecai. Oh, OK. Yeah, well, hopefully that's the book Mordecai, not the film. The book Mordecai, yes. Fantastic. I love that, and I love Flashman. Yes, me too. It's a novel. It's a novel. This is the first one. It's on Kindle on Amazon at the moment. I did see printed copies. I haven't seen the printed copies on Amazon, but I shall email the gentleman I got their email and say, where do we find printed copies? Fantastic. The authors themselves are Duncan Crow and James Peake dapper gentleman that they were but I just thought it was right up the perfect gentleman streak right up your and my streak absolutely and so I thought we should mention them and say jolly good gentlemen scoundrels us all <laughs> indeed yes yeah we can enjoy it in fiction um, yes yes I've yes. just found that on Amazon I quite like a, a Kindle book so that might be my weekend reading for me I'm adding it to my pile That's splendid did you see the the news physical book sales have gone up and e-book sales have gone down that doesn't really surprise me. I must admit, I, I use ebooks quite a lot, especially if they're books I want to refer to, business books that I maybe want to talk to clients about. But if I'm reading for pleasure, I much prefer a paper book. I've tried. I cannot do a non-fiction book that's electronic. It has to be a paperback for me. Almost all of the, the non-fiction books that I have as electronic copies, I've bought after having had the paper copy, just because it's a book I want to have with me more easily to refer to. Yeah, I can do either for fiction. I'm not so wedded to a physical book for fiction. I like the physical books, but non-fiction, I cannot do it. I've tried and I cannot do it. I have little posted clear tabs. I tab my books to death. I find the highlighting function on Kindle too difficult to operate quickly. It always takes a little bit of a fiddle and it takes me out. So I'll tend to highlight things I agree with and sometimes argue against things I disagree with in the margins or put question mark. I use a notation of AP with a circle to highlight something I want to take action on or a question mark in a circle to highlight something I want to find out more about an exclamation mark for something that's important. I've yet to find a way of doing that, which is acceptable on an electronic book. No, I can't do that. Anyway, sir, we should dash off and go delve into our reading. I think I'm going to go and look at chef's knives and see what I want to consider. To hack vegetables with. Ladies and gentlemen out there, please do get in contact. If you have any questions, drop us a line at enquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv or catch us on social media, either the Perfect Gentleman sites or James and I. We're always happy to hear from you. We always like speaking to you. We always like answering your questions. Indeed. We will be back. We're back on track. So we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you very much, my friend. You too, my friend. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace.